0: We'll turn in your copy of the Scriptures, if you would, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. We left off last week, verse 9, so we will pick up this week, verse 10 of the 11th chapter. Have you ever been challenged to go on a big adventure or to take a big leap of faith? To do something that's maybe out of your comfort zone or something that's daring, maybe even that's scary. Something that will likely cost you something. In the early 1900s, an explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton was chasing a dream. He wanted to be the first man to reach the South Pole. The problem for Shackleton was that someone beat him to it. In 1911, one of Shackleton's friends succeeded in a trip to the South Pole, but they succeeded without him. That left Shackleton disappointed, but his adventurous spirit nonetheless remained. There were other wildernesses that were worth exploring. And so Shackleton began a new quest. He turned his attention to a new adventure. He wanted to be the first man to ever lead an expedition across Antarctica. Apparently, adventure only counts if you're in freezing cold places. I think I would have tried to find some record that needed breaking on Fiji or something. Shackleton was bound for Antarctica, but in order to pull off this expedition, he needed men who would go along with him on this trip, men who would be willing to leave everything and jump into the danger and the excitement and also the freezing cold temperatures of the Arctic. And the question is, where do you find these kinds of people who are willing to go off on such a scheme? After all, there is a reason why no one to this point had ever succeeded in crossing Antarctica before. Where do you find these kind of people? How do you pull a group like that together? Well, Shackleton supposedly took out an ad in the newspaper. And in fact, that ad in the newspaper, recruiting men for this expedition, is undoubtedly one of the greatest help-wanted postings in all of history. The ad is said to have run like this, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. You have to admire the honesty. I mean, where do you sign for an employment offer like that? What could possibly go wrong? It sounds like a great employment opportunity. I mean, there are some questions I think the ad doesn't address. Do the small wages come with a 401k match and what does the employer health insurance program look like? But nonetheless, it seems like a, a really great employment opportunity. What's incredible, in fact, is that people actually answered that advertisement. In fact, Shackleton got more applicants than men he needed for the trip. He had to turn people away. And remarkably, that advertisement dramatically undersold the danger and adversity that awaited those men on that trip. In 1914, Shackleton and his men would embark on a ship very appropriately named Endurance, and they would have much to endure before they would return home. But that's a story for another time. This morning in our text, a man is presented with a call to pursue a grand adventure, an exploration, in fact, into a strange and foreign land. There is a promise that answering this call for adventure is going to result in honor and in blessing, but there is also an acknowledgment that answering this call is going to cost something. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In other words, leave your home, leave the people that you know, leave your place of safety and security, leave many of those who you love and who loved you behind and go to a strange place. Step out boldly into the grand adventure of faith. As we come this morning in our study of Genesis to the birth and then the call of Abram, we are marking a significant moment in the narrative of the book of Genesis. In fact, there are a fair number of commentaries on the book of Genesis that divide the commentaries into two volumes. And when they do divide their commentaries in Genesis into two volumes, the first volume usually contains a commentary on Genesis 1 through the middle part of chapter 11, and the second volume would start at the passage that we are in this morning. The first 11 and a half chapters of Genesis are devoted to what we have referred to before as the primeval history. And even though all that has occurred in that primeval history is condensed into only 11 and a half chapters, that nonetheless represents a grand swath of human history. If we were to put together the genealogies from the, birth of, from the creation of Adam down to the birth of Abram, we would find that those genealogies comprise around 2,000 years of human history. And I've mentioned before that if we were to put all of the biblical genealogies together, as well as known historical dates with the later things that are coming, the total time from Adam to the birth of Jesus Christ is a period of around 4,000 years, which means that nearly half of the entire timeline of the biblical history is contained in the opening 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. So if you've thought at any point thus far that this sermon series is kind of dragging along rather slowly, I need to tell you, we've been moving at historical warp speed through this book. But Genesis is not 11 and a half chapters, it's 50 chapters long. The final chapter of the book of Genesis is going to conclude with the death of a man named Joseph. Spoiler alert. Uh, by the way. Joseph is this man, Abram, who we're going to be considering this morning. He's Abram's great-grandson, meaning that the pace of the book of Genesis is about to dramatically slow down, and the lens, if you will, is about to zoom in. If, if so far we were to conceive of, of the book of Genesis, the study of Genesis, it's as though we've been considering a wide-angle lens scene that's been moving very rapidly and covering a huge portion of time, but now the scenes are going to slow way down. The camera angle is going to tighten and zoom significantly closer in. The first 11 and a half chapters of Genesis cover 2,000 years and 19 generations of humanity. The final 38 and a half chapters of Genesis cover only four generations over a period of just 368 years. So we are moving now from the primeval history where a lot of significant events take place over large periods of time, and the pace is moving very fast, we're now entering into the second phase of the historical narrative of Genesis, the patriarchal history. And in this section, we are going to be focusing now in greater depth on the lives of just a few people, but people who are of critical significance in God's redemptive plan for humanity. So we also come this morning to a new thematic movement in the book of Genesis. You remember we identified five themes that really move the narrative of Genesis forward. So far we've covered creation, followed by corruption, most recently judgment, and this morning we come at the fourth of those themes, promise. Now recall with me something that God said to the serpent all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the immediate aftermath of the fall. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And I mentioned before when we considered that text that that statement, that promise, is really the thesis statement for the book of Genesis and, truthfully, the rest of the Old Testament. God is going to bring a family of promise to humanity from whom God is going to one day raise up a champion who will defeat the serpent and deliver humanity from the curse of sin. That is the meta-narrative thesis of the rest of the biblical story that is set in Genesis 3.15. And that promise becomes the driving theme then of Moses' interest in the rest of the book of Genesis. Our text this morning begins with the genealogy of Noah's son Shem there in verse 10. And this focus in on yet another genealogy is cueing us in as readers to the fact that this is the family line that is going to continue that family line of promise that is going to culminate in the hero that we are looking for. This family is important because they are carrying the promises of God forward. Now we're not going to read through the entire genealogy from Shem down to Abram for the reasons that Dave noted. I'm not interested in butchering names up here either. But we get down to the end of the genealogy, toward the end of it. In verse 24 we read, When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. Nahor lived, after he fathered Terah, 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. As the focus of Genesis begins to zoom in on this man, Abram, I'd like to spend a few moments considering with you some introductory reflections that we're able to make about this man. So we're going to begin by performing a biographical sketch of what I believe is an unlikely hero. Continuing on in verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. and Terah died in Haran. Now, just to clear things up, because we've heard the name Haran a couple of different times, Haran is one of the sons of Terah. Haran has a son named Lot, and then Haran dies. Later on, Terah takes his family, including Abram and Haran's son Lot, and they're on a journey to the land of Canaan, but before they get there, they stop at a place called Haran. So you've got a person named Haran and a place named Haran. They're not the same, and those names are just incidental to one another. They're not related in any way. So with that out of our minds, we need to now turn our attention to this man, Abram. And in filling out this biographical sketch of Abram, I'd like to make a few observations with you, both from this immediate text, as well as some other places in Scripture that fill in some additional detail for us. So number one, at first glance, Abram appears to be just a guy in a list of guys. Now, I like to watch football. And all of the players that you watch in professional football are dramatically, by huge increments, more athletic than I am and than any of us really are. And yet, even among football players, there's a clear hierarchy of skill levels. There are people who are just sort of mediocre professional football. It seems ridiculous to say that, but they're mediocre elite athletes, and and they just sort of fill out the roster, and then you've got the really elite talents. And in football, there's an expression for the players that are just sort of normal players. They're not... Special. They just fill out the roster. They're called Jags. Just a guy. They're just the normal guys who fill out the roster, not particularly special. Just a guy. And at first blush, that's kind of what Abram appears to be. Just a guy. If you glance over the genealogy that's listed there from verse 10 through verse 26, you're going to notice that after each family head is named, it says, and he had other sons and daughters. That gets repeated over and over again. In other words, each of the people that's named in this list, they have other brothers and sisters, and then when they have children, one of their children is named, but then they also have other sons and daughters. So the list that we are looking at is not some remarkable list of single sons, of people who are the only children in their household, one line straight from Shem down to Abram, and there are no other strings or, or, or branches on this tree. We're looking at one particular branch of Shem's family tree. Shem's family tree is significantly larger than what we're looking at. So at first glance, this list indicates that there's nothing to us that would suggest that there's anything intrinsically remarkable about Abram. He's just a guy in a list of guys. Number two, Abram is an aging man in an increasingly young man's world. Run your eye again for just a moment. Just scan down verses 10 through 26. And as you do that, notice with me two things. Number one, men are having children much younger than they were having children prior to the flood. Prior to the flood, men are having children at 300, 400, 500 years old. After the flood, in this genealogy, we find that men are having, on average, children in their early 30s. In fact, much closer to the age in which people would be having children today. Second, notice that correspondingly the average life expectancy of these men is dramatically dropping with each member of the generations. So you start with around Shem around 500 years then you go to 400 years, then 300 years, then 200 years all the way down to 100 years. Now Terah, Abram's father, bumps things up back a little bit. He has children a little bit later. He has a child at 70 years old and he lives to be a little bit over 200 years old. But nonetheless, the, the trajectory of humankind is, is moving dramatically downward in terms of the age at which men are living and the age at which they are having children. In the post-flood world, the biological effects of the fall on our bodies seems to have kicked now into overdrive. Increasingly, this is becoming then a young man's world because men are dying at ages that would have been like adolescence for the men who were living prior to the flood. The age at which men are in the prime of life has dramatically shifted downward. So if you and I were tasked with the, with the job of picking an ideal profile for a main character for this narrative who's going to carry the promises of God forward, and he's going to need to do that through a family, I would suggest to you that we would be likely, if we were charged charge of picking who that person might be, we'd be looking for someone maybe in their late 20s or early 30s. That's the character we'd be looking for. Someone who is just entering into the prime of life and into the key childbearing years. But later, in chapter 12, we're going to find out that the time in which we are introduced to Abram, Abram is already 75 years old. I said that Terah has children a little bit later than everyone else in this genealogy, but even he has children by 70 years old, which is almost double the age at which everyone else is having children. Abram's already older than his father Terah was when Terah had a child. That leads us to the third observation. Abram is a childless man with an ironic name. Read in verse 29 that Abram is married to a woman named Sarai. turns out that they are actually related to one another. We're going to get to that in a few chapters. We don't know a whole lot else about Sarai, but one critical piece of information that we are given in this passage is there in verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. When we read that Sarai was barren, this does not simply mean that she and Abram are struggling to have children, that they just haven't succeeded yet, But there's some hope that that situation is going to be remedied in the near future. Now, barrenness denotes that this condition of childlessness has now extended on to the point where there is no longer any reasonable expectation for a child in this marriage. For any here who have struggled with infertility, you know the depth of pain Abram and Sarah must have been experiencing. In the Old Testament, a barren womb was a deep personal tragedy. It was also one that was frequently connected with aspersions of guilt or of a curse. There was an assumption both within Jewish culture as it would develop later, but also within the ancient Near Eastern world that if you were barren, particularly think in the ancient pagan world, there's a lot of fertility cults in the regions that are happening here. If you were barren there was something in your life that you had done to deprive you of the blessing of having children and heirs. And more than that, some way that you probably displeased the gods. There's something wrong with you that's the result of you not having children. And so not only is this state one, of, one that would be emotionally crushing, but it was also socially embarrassing. Everyone would be looking at you wondering, what evil have you committed that is depriving you of this blessing? And because... Abram and his wife can't have children. Abram's name is therefore deeply ironic. Because Abram's name is a combination of two Hebrew words. The Hebrew word ab, or for father, and ramrum, meaning great or exalted. Avram, Abram. Which essentially means great or exalted father. So you can imagine Terah naming his son Abram, and there's this sort of anticipation that's built into this name that this man Abram, this son Abram, is himself going to be a great father. And the bitter irony now is that Abram, 75 years old, married to Sarai, barren womb, he has this great father, no children, no reasonable expectation for children. So again, if our objective was to select a couple That would carry on this line of promise. Abram and Sarai would be about at the end of your list of people that you would pick. Fourth piece of biographical information, this family, Terah, his sons, including Abram and their wives, this family are a group of idol-worshiping pagans. We read that Terah and his family are coming from this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And this is part of the upper regions of Mesopotamia, a region that was known in the ancient world for its occult worship of various fertility gods, and particularly the worship of the moon god. In fact, numerous names connected to Abram, including Sarai and Milcah and Terah itself, are names that commentators have connected to the worship of these pagan deities. And that connection to idolatry is made explicit for us in the book of Joshua. So, Joshua 24, verse 2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abram from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. So, somewhere along the line, the family of Shem, or at least this particular branch in the family of Shem, have stopped worshiping the God that delivered Noah from the flood. They have become idol worshipers. And Terah and his sons are idol-worshiping pagans at the point in time where God comes to Abram. The fact that this family are not sold-out worshipers of the one true God at the moment at which we first encounter them is, I think, revealed by an apparent episode of faltering faith in the life of Abram's father, Terah. We read there in verse 31 of chapter 11, Terah took Abram his son and Lot his, the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Verse 1 of chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So, Terah and his family, they set out from the land of Ur in the, Chal- in the Chaldeans toward the land of Canaan, the text tells us. We aren't given a reason in this passage that motivates this leaving of Ur to go to Canaan. Why is Terah picking up tents? Why is he taking his family? And why is he going to the land of Canaan? We aren't told in this passage, but I think the reason is given to us actually in the book of Acts. The book of Acts a disciple of Jesus Christ, Stephen, is being charged by the Jewish leaders of his belief in Christ, and he is, in fact, about to be stoned for his belief in Jesus. But Stephen preaches to them the gospel beginning by building the meta-narrative of Scripture that leads from Abram to Jesus. And so we read, beginning in verse one, the high priest said to Stephen, "Are these things so, the, the charges that you've been charged with? Are you a follower of Jesus?" Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. And so Stephen informs us that the events that are described, the call of Abram, that occurs in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, occur chronologically prior to the events that are described for us in chapter 11, verses 31 through the end of the chapter. And that, by the way, is a fairly common feature in, Noah's, or in Moses' writing of the book of Genesis, by the way. Recall back to uh, G- Genesis chapters 1 and 2, for example. So the opening... The chapter of Genesis explains the six days of creation. The first few verses of chapter 2 unpacks the seventh day that God rests and sets aside as a Sabbath rest. But then the rest of chapter 2 goes back and zooms in on the events that transpired in the middle of day 6 of creation. It goes back in the chronology to an event that had happened previously. And that's essentially what Moses is doing here in Genesis chapter 12. The opening verses of chapter 12 are giving us the event that motivated the journey that we find in the preceding chapter. So, this journey from Ur to the land of Canaan by Terah and his household is a response to God's call to Abram. And Before we comment further about that call, I want you to notice that Terah's household doesn't quite make it to where they're supposed to be going. They're headed to Canaan, but we read, They went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. They set out for Canaan. They get part of the way there. Then they come to to Haran, and Terah decides, you know what, that's far enough for me. Terah, it would seem, runs out of faith, or at least his obedience to God dries up at Haran. And notice that when they come to Haran, the text says, And they settled there. That's an ominous note if we've been reading the book of Genesis carefully to this point. Because there's only two other instances so far where we've read of people settling down. The first is in Genesis chapter 4. God condemns Cain for the murder of his brother Abel. That Cain is to be a wanderer over the earth. That he is to be a nomad without a home. We read a few verses later. And Cain settled in the land of Nod east of Eden and built a city there. So Cain defies God first in killing his brother Abel and then defies God again by refusing to submit to the judgment that God gives to him by settling down and building a city. And then we read a second time of this occasion of settling down last week in our passage in Genesis chapter 11, the first part, that these people who were supposed to spread out and fill the earth, they come to a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there and they too build a city, the city of Babel. We drew a connection between those two passages last week, and now we can add a third instance of settling down. It's Terah settling down, and like the other instances, he is coming short of obedience to God's commands. It's a lesson here that we can glean from this passage as well as from the Scripture reading we considered earlier in Hebrews 11. Faith is what is required to stay the course if we would pursue the promises of God. We can start out with good intentions. We can start out with good motives the good intentions of our heart that we will persevere and we push forward on our own human effort but without faith we will always fall a little bit short. One commentator noted of Terah's apparent lack of faith on his own man will never get any further than this. We are reminded at this point that Terah and his children they have not been worshipping this whole time the one true and living God. They have been worshipping idols and false gods. So to summarize the personal profile that we've put together so far. Abram is just a guy in a list of guys. He's an aging man in an increasingly young man's world. He is a childless man with an ironic name, and he is an idol-worshiping pagan and the son of a man who lacks vision and has faltering faith. So if we would put the pieces of this brief biographical sketch of Abram together, the picture that emerges for us is A man who is about the last person that you would select for the mission that's coming. My freshman year of high school, I competed in speech and debate. Each tournament had loads of students from the various six states that comprised our region that we competed in. And traditionally, the the opening night of the tournament was registration night. And during registration night, quite often a game of Ultimate Frisbee would break out. Now, if you know me, you know I love Ultimate Frisbee. So, there for opening registration night, I see this game of Frisbee that's being organized, and I head over to join the game. Well, there's this huge group of students that want to play Frisbee. In fact, there's so many that they're dividing into four teams. We're going to be playing on two fields, have two games going. And so, as we're dividing into these four teams, there are four captains who are chosen to begin selecting these teams. Now, this is my freshman year, my first regional tournament. I've never competed with these people before. I don't know them. They don't know me. Most importantly, the captains have no idea who I am or even what my name is. And so they work through the selection process. They begin picking everybody, dividing them into teams. Well, they pick everybody. Four teams worth of players, guys and gals. And I'm the last person left. You know what they say to me when I'm just standing there? I'm like, oh man, I, the guy who has to be Mr. Irrelevant on some team. They look at me and they said, actually, you know what? The teams are full. We don't need you to play. I have to walk back from the field just thinking all the time, their loss. Like Michael Jordan, I took that personally. Some of you maybe know that experience, being the last person picked. Others of you perhaps have sat in the other seat, being the captain on a team who is charged with selecting players, picking people to fill out the team. Well, based on what we've seen of Abram up to this point, if you were looking for someone to join your team, the goal was to build a nation, to start this great family through whom all of the promises of God to humanity would one day be fulfilled, this guy is basically the last guy that you would pick. In fact, if he was still standing there at the end, you might look at him and say, you know what, we're good, my team's full. This is about as unlikely a hero, as unlikely a main character in the biblical story as you could expect. But all of that serves as the perfect backdrop for the next thing that we observe from our text, and that is the God who calls and who chooses. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As you look in these verses at the God who calls and chooses, I'd like to note with you three things about this calling and choosing. Number one, God chose Abram. Abram didn't choose God. The book of Joshua makes it clear to us that Abram and his family worshipped false gods while they were living beyond the Euphrates River in the land of Ur. And it is while they are still living there, still worshipping these other gods, that Abram receives this call from God. In other words, Abram is still a false God-loving, idol-worshipping pagan at the moment that God comes and calls Abram. It's not as though Abram suddenly began this spiritual faith journey where he is a truth seeker and he starts out from Ur toward the land of Canaan and he says, you know what, I don't think we've got it quite right with all these pagan deities we're worshiping. I think there's the unknown God out there and I want to know who he is so I'm going to go on this spiritual journey to find him. That's not what happens. Well, Abram is still an idol-worshiping pagan God called Abram. God sovereignly chose him before he had one thought of the true one and living God. You see, our salvation begins with God's choice, not ours. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that if you are a believer, if you are in Jesus Christ, that you were chosen by God in Christ since before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, With which he has blessed us in the beloved. Which means that if you are here this morning and you are in Christ Jesus, that before we ever had a thought for God, that we have been loved and we have been known and we have been chosen. Think on that thought for just a moment and consider how that should entirely reshape the identity that we are living in how that thought that we have been eternally loved and known and chosen should impact our daily worries and anxieties. No matter what insecurities you may at times feel in life, no matter what fears you may have, no matter what things you may presently be going through, if you belong to Jesus, God has chosen you, He has loved you, He has known you to be His own since before the world began. I can think of no more identity-shaping truth than that one. We buy into so many counterfeit identities, so many things that we are chasing, that we want to define our lives, when the single defining truth for the believer is that if you are in Christ, God has called you as his own since before time began. And nothing can shake that reality. So in light of that, I'd suggest to you that our day-to-day issues are nothing in comparison with the kind of eternal love that you have been given in Christ. The second observation about this calling of Abraham and this of Abram, there is nothing that Abram is bringing to the table here. We've noted it already, but Abram doesn't seem to have the goods for the role that he is being cast in. He's getting older. He hasn't been a righteous man in his life. He's been an idol worshiper in his life. He has no kids, nor does he have any reasonable expectation of having children. But the basis of God's calling of Abram has nothing to do with who Abram is or what Abram can offer. The basis of God's calling has everything to do with who God is and what God can offer. So again, before moving on, another quick thought of application here. The call of Abram is a humbling and an encouraging reminder to us that God delights in using the least equipped people to demonstrate the greatness of his own character. Looking at his profile from a human perspective, I don't have the foggiest idea why God would ever choose Abram. Just like from a human perspective, I don't have the foggiest idea why God ever chose me. But Paul tells us that God delights in using the weak things of this world in order to shame the strength and the wisdom of the wise. That God delights in using broken jars of clay kinds of people in order to reveal the greatness of His own glory so that at the end of our transformation, there will be no question about who the glory belongs to. That in these jars of clay, it is manifestly evident that the glory belongs to God and not to us. You know, we can sometimes forget, if we've been Christians for a long time, we can sometimes forget How much grace was needed on us? How much grace is needed on us? It's been my delight the last couple of weeks on Wednesdays to be in my office studying. And usually I've got my door closed. And I'm somebody who reads and writes with classical music blaring as high as possible. Tim Anderson shares a wall with me. So he's developing a love for Vivaldi that he never knew that he needed. Uh, I usually have my door closed. The music's going and I'm writing and reading middle of the week, sermon preparation or or other things. The last couple of weeks, my music's been off, my door's been open because I've been listening to the choir rehearse the song, the anthem that you heard this morning, Amazing Grace. If your heart wasn't stirred this morning when you heard that, I don't know what is spiritually wrong with you, but there is something wrong with you, have that checked immediately. Sitting there listening to the proclamation of the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. We can forget, even as we propositionally sing and proclaim those truths, even as we get excited about those truths and favorite hymns, we can forget the penetrating personal truth of that statement. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So what are we doing if we turn our sight into blindness again by the corrupting folly of pride? That we would begin to look upon ourselves and forget how much grace was needed on us. And you know, as that seeps into our hearts, what begins to happen is that we start to look down on others. Look down on others around us in church. Look down on others around us in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our places of work. People that we begin to think, yeah, we deserved to be saved. We never put it in those terms out loud, but in our hearts we begin to think that there was something in us that merited God choosing us, but we understand why He wouldn't choose them. If we aren't careful, that not only becomes an insidious pride that will take hold of our hearts, but it becomes a way in which we become very comfortable with our failure to proclaim the gospel to those around us. Because they're not worthy of the grace that we receive. Twisted, that thought is. Friends, has it occurred to you that you and I have been called by God in part because we were exactly the kind of broken, needy, sin-filled, ill-equipped, unremarkable people through whom the glory of God's grace would shine the brightest? That thought should humble us, yes. But I suggest it should also encourage us. Because my inadequacy And your inadequacy means nothing to the God who is wholly sufficient in Himself to fulfill all of His good promises. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. The beauty, the encouragement is this, that God nonetheless delights in calling and using us, and we have the remarkable privilege of participating in God's mission in the world. It means that we serve a God who can do abundantly more than we could ever ask or think and who is not limited in what He can do by what we can do. Alright, back to observations about the call of Abram. Number three, answering God's call requires always faith, obedience, and sacrifice. We mentioned Shackleton's daunting ad earlier, but This call to action from God requires quite a bit of daunting sacrifice as well. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In other words, leave everything that is familiar to you behind. Leave everything that you know and love. Leave your gods that you worshipped before. Everything that is presently comfortable to you, leave that. Everything that brings you a sense of safety and security, leave that behind too, which by the way is a significant ask. We're going to find out as we move through the upcoming chapters that the land through which Abram is going to have to travel is filled with roving marauders and warrior kings who are wicked people, cities of the plain that we will find out later. It is not even safe to try to go in there to stay the night. These are wicked places filled with wicked people who do wicked things. It is a dangerous calling that God is giving to Abram. So he is, Abram is giving up safety, perceived safety at least, by leaving the strength of his clan behind. He is to leave his family, those who he cares about and who care about you. Remember, Shem's family is much larger than just Terah's immediate sons. There's this whole family that we will find later Abram will send back to, to uh, find wives for his children. And so there is this, this family that he is leaving behind. Leave the land that you know. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you yet where you are going. You'll find out that you have got there when I tell you. Scripture reading this morning from the book of Hebrews makes clear to us, Abram went out from his country not knowing where he was going. His journey of faith meant he didn't know the end of the journey. Only God does, and that's why it's faith. Notice that each step that is required of Abraham grows more personal and it's requiring more of Abram's obedience. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, each step progressively more intimate regarding what Abram must leave behind him. How does Martin Luther express this truth? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. By the way, that is always the beginning for those who would follow God. To leave behind those things that we loved before in order to love the one He was truly worthy. Trusting by faith all the while that He is in fact worthy of our love and that He will keep His promises. Every Christian who has ever embarked on the grand adventure of following God knows that it begins by responding to the call of God in faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. One brief thought of application here. Answering the call of God in faith always costs us something, but it is a price worth paying. Abram had to give up his land, his people, his comfort, his safety. He had to embark on the grand adventure of faith, and it threatened to cost him something, Faith always does because it wouldn't be faith otherwise. But as the missionary Jim Elliott, who gave his life as a martyr, once remarked, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Our reading in Hebrews 11 earlier said that Abram went out from his country not knowing where he was going, but all the while he was looking for another country that is a heavenly one. In other words, Abram was giving up what he could not keep to gain what he could not lose. It was a price well worth the cost. No matter what God is calling you in, you cannot receive the promises of God without responding in faith. The final item then for our text that we should observe is three redemption-shaped promises that God is calling Abram to. Verse 2, and I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We're not going to linger long here this morning, not because these promises are unimportant, but because we're going to be able to return to these again in a few chapters when we come to the covenant that God makes with Abram. In fact, these are incredibly important promises. I say that these are redemption-shaped promises because these commitments now set the trajectory for all of God's saving promises moving forward. The whole book of Genesis, the whole narrative of the Bible is now concerned with the fulfillment of these promises because they are connected to the promise of Genesis chapter 3. God promises, notice Abram, three things. Number one, land. God is taking Abram to a particular land that will be an inheritance to Abram and to those who come after him. Second, God promises to make Abram a great nation, and with that, to make Abram into a great name. God's promising to grow Abram's family, which is a miraculous promise to somebody who, whose wife is barren, who has no children. But Yet, that's the promise that God gives. And notice that connected to that promise, God says, I will make your name great. Well, That should be ringing in our ears because that's exactly what the people in Babel wanted. They stayed where they were because they wanted to make their name great. And yet God is the one who gets to determine whose name is great on the earth. And He chooses Abram. I will make your name great. Third, the promise of blessing. God will bless those who bless Abram, curse those who curse him. It's an offer of blessing and favor and also of protection. But more than this, notice that God says, In you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So how? How is it that God is going to bless humanity through Abram's family? And the answer is that Abram's family will finally culminate in the serpent-crushing hero that we were promised in Genesis chapter 3. The title of this sermon is A New Hope Renewed. Sort of funny to talk about the title of the sermon at the end of the sermon. Nonetheless, A New Hope Renewed because if we refer back to Genesis chapter 3, things seemed so dark back then. There's sin, there's shame, brokenness, cursing, a verdict of death that is rendered. Yet in the midst of all that is there so ugly and dark, there's also this ray of hope when God promises that a seed is going to come from the woman who is going to defeat their enemy, the serpent. But then comes murder and corruption and a global flood and heroes who get passed out drunk and city builders who defy God and who have their language confused. So As a reader, the question is, what happened to that promise back in Genesis chapter 3? Has God forgotten it? Did man mess it all up? No, these promises right here in Genesis 12, these promises given to Abram, are hope renewing for humanity because they are the means by which God will fulfill those promises that he made in the garden. And the fulfillment of these promises that God is making to Abram will result, therefore, in the one who can offer salvation to the world in his death-defying work. So why should we care about promises that God made to some guy named Abram 4,000 years ago in some place called Ur? We should care because if you are in Christ, we stand here today as children of those promises. Because the blessings to the nations of the world has come to us through Abram's greater son. So in Genesis, we have come now through fall and through murder and through corruption, through judgment and through flood, through angels coming down in order to corrupt and defile the human race with the daughters of men, to men trying to go up by building towers that they imagine will reach to the heavens. And yet in all of this, God's saving promise has never once been shaken, has never once been threatened, and has never once been forgotten. And so when God offers his saving call and his saving promises to us, a response is always required. Will you believe God's promises and walk in faith? Will you persevere in faith or will you stop and hear him? Will you believe God's call? We'll see soon enough that Abram does. But will we? Let's pray. And now, God, we have just been reminded in your word that you delight in using those things and those people whom the world, in our twisted understanding of what is strength and wisdom, those things and those people that we would pass over and look beyond are the exact vessels that you delight in using to demonstrate your glory. Who would ever look on Abram and yet you say to him, I will make your name great. Father, we are challenged by the call to respond in faith. May we trust in your promises, recognizing that the one who makes the promises is wholly true, wholly faithful. May we persevere in faith. In Christ's name, amen.